my wife was, you know, she was very encouraging through the whole journey, but she was just saying to me, well, what's the plan? You know, we, we've, we've sold our car. We're not going on holidays anymore. You know, we've remortgaged the house. You don't take the kids out for hot chocolates at the weekend. You know, what's the plan to get us back onto a, another track? Today's episode is brought to you by Picasso, a co-ownership platform for luxury homes. Picasso curates stunning holiday homes in top vacation destinations around the world. Co-owners of Picasso homes can right-size their ownership and own anywhere from an eighth to half of a bespoke holiday home. Picasso also takes care of all the hassles associated with second home ownership, like bill pay, maintenance, repairs, and interior design. And their smart stay technology makes scheduling easy and equitable. So all you have to do is show up to your dream home and enjoy. Head to Picasso.com, that's P-A-C-A-S-O.com to learn more. We left a link in the show notes. Welcome back to 40 Minute Mentor, the podcast on a mission to make mentorship more accessible by interviewing brilliant leaders who are building or have built exceptional purpose-driven brands. Today, I'm joined by Graham Hobson, entrepreneur, technologist, angel investor, and board member. In 2000, Graham co-founded Photobox, the popular photo printing and personalization business. A few years in, they merged with Photoways in France, which saw Graham move from a CEO to a CTO role, and they continued on an acquisition spree, which included buying Moonpig. In 2016, Graham and the team exited Photobox for a reported £400 million, an incredible achievement. And since then, Graham has worked with various startups and scale-ups in advisory and non-exec roles, as well as lots of pro bono work for social impact businesses and causes. I had the great pleasure of meeting Graham through a founders group that we're both a part of and really admire all he's achieved and his refreshing and depending on your political persuasion, potentially controversial take on wealth distribution, something that I'm looking forward to talking about a bit later. I'm beyond grateful he's decided to join us today and share his unique story and amazing mentorship. Welcome, Graham. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, James. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to the chat. Awesome. Well, we always like to start with some kickoff questions so our listeners can get to know you a little bit better. So if you could finish the following sentences after me, that would be great. One of my daily habits is... I'll give you two, two for the price of one. Exercise is a big one over the last few years. Jumping ahead, I had like a really bad burnout during the photo box journey and I realized that I wasn't looking after myself enough. So I either run or cycle every day, and I'm a huge advocate of that. And the other one is I read the book, Why We Sleep, Why Sleep Matters. Really great book about sleep, about the beginning of the um, COVID outbreak. And I thought, right, that's it. I'm going to get eight hours sleep every night. And I pretty much engineer my day to get those eight hours of sleep and uh, feel good for it as well. Brilliant. We'll definitely find the name of the book and we'll pop it in the show notes because I've heard great things about it. And I think that's one of the myths of uh, entrepreneurship that you have to have like two hours sleep to be successful. I think all the science sort of points towards the importance of sleep. Um, And that's something that I'm also really working on because I I was not great in the earlier part of my career. My first ever job was? I guess the first thing I ever earned any proper money from was freelance programming when I was 15. And this is in the very earliest days of personal computers at home. And I was 
I kind of joined a group and people used to come and ask us to write software. It was very boring accounting software I ended up writing. But, but yeah, I got paid to program at the age of 15. But my first proper job was I worked for the London Stock Exchange after leaving uni in, uh, in a tech role. So interesting job, amazing organization, but wasn't for me and I moved on. Interesting. What you may call not a proper first job, I think most people call definitely a, a proper first job programming for money. I mean, at 15 is quite incredible. So uh, fair play to you. Brilliance to me means? I think it's someone who confidently adds value to any situation. And that might mean that you go to them for advice or help and they tell you, I can't help you with this, but I'm going to I'm gonna point you in the direction of somebody that can. I, I think that's it, really. You know, we're here to add value to the world and to people around us. And, um, and if, if you're brilliant, that's what you do. I love that. Thank you. I wish I could be better at. Probably like you, James, and many of your listeners, I, I think I'm a type A personality person. I'm very action oriented and I tend to kind of rush in and try and fix things, maybe without giving them enough consideration. And so I think I wish I was a bit better at slowing down and listening to people and maybe understanding their point of view before I rush in and try and save the day. I yeah, completely agree with that. I know for a fact there's going to be so many people going, yep, yeah, yep, yeah, yep, yeah, that's me, that's me. That's definitely a common one amongst founders that we speak to. A misconception people have about me is? I don't know. I mean, I know it's a bit weird because I'm doing a podcast now, but I'm not a very public person. And I think a lot of people don't know me and, and some people don't know the company, Photobox. So I'd like to think most people don't have any preconceptions or otherwise about me. But there are two things I come up against. One is that people assume that entrepreneurs who've sold businesses for large sums, and by the way, the 400 million, it, it didn't come to me, right? It, it, uh, it, lots of investors benefited from that. But anyway, if you sell a company for a big sum of money, people assume you're a bit of a dick, to be honest. I, I think I, I'm expected to be aggressive and unpleasant. And I think uh, one guy at the event we recently were at together, somebody came up to me from the firm before the event started and said, oh, you seem really nice. <laughs> like, I don't know what they expected. They expected me to be a bit hard-nosed and unpleasant. That's one thing. The other thing is I think people assume that I don't have time for them, when in fact, I, I do have time to listen to people generally and understand what challenges they're going through. And I always find it interesting to hear and comment on that. So I think those are two. They're great. And the, the two reasons why I'm so happy to have in this conversation, because you are a lovely person. Like for the first time I, I saw you and you kindly gave up your time to have a conversation with me. I could just tell, I mean, you're exactly the sort of person that I think we want to showcase. I think there are lots of dicks at sell companies, but that's not always the case. And uh, I think it's always nice when the nice guy does really well, a uh, nice guy or girl. So um, it's a pleasure to hear more about your story today. Thank you for being here. The final quick part question, can you share something that we couldn't learn from your CV? So that could be a failure, a setback that you've learned a lot from. I think the thing that's least obvious in my CV was that I grew up as an only child and I felt like I lacked a lot of social skills. And I honestly believe I didn't kind of emerge as a fully fledged adult till about the age of 24 or 25 when I met my wife. And before then, I was just, you know, completely uncalibrated and a bit awkward. No, and I think our better hearts often can have that impact. I think that's very true. Well, thank you so much, Graham. I think we've already, we've already got some great stuff there that we can dig into a little bit more. 
So you've already alluded to your, your upbringing a little bit, but did you always want to be an entrepreneur or did you have a different career in mind when you were growing up? I had a very pleasant middle-class upbringing in a northwest suburb of London. My dad was an estate agent. My mum worked in the business with him. Like I said, I was an only child. You know, we, we lived in a small house, and but we went on, you know, nice holidays. It, it was kind of a normal middle-class upbringing, but very pleasant. I think my dad really wanted me to be an estate agent, take over the business from him. And I guess up until a certain age, I thought, yeah, that's my path. But it was in my early teens that computers started to emerge and I I became one of those kids that sits in their bedroom with a computer and figures out how to make it work. And and I think from very early on at that point, maybe 14, I thought, this is what I want to do. So no, not entrepreneurship, but definitely something to do with technology. And I think, I know you, you mentioned, or we're going to talk about Nick Jenkins at some point. Nick and I had in many ways very similar upbringing. We both kind of felt like we didn't fit. We saw the world and thought of ways it could be better. And and I think a lot of entrepreneurs see things and think, I want to change that. I don't necessarily want to go down the standard route. So definitely not entrepreneurship, but seeing the world through a slightly different eyes, that was definitely my recollection of my teens. Brilliant. And yeah, you can see the, the technology thread from pretty early on, which is, is is amazing. You dropped out of school at 16. And I think you've referenced before when I, when I heard you speak about the you benefited from social mobility. So can you tell us a bit more about how you've benefited in that way? And how that kind of earlier part of your life and career, I guess those teenage years, how that and some of the things you experienced have helped you to become the very successful entrepreneur that you are today? Yeah, I didn't enjoy school. I, I think part of what I said of not quite fitting in, slight social awkwardness. I didn't want to be in Cubs and Scouts. I wasn't in a clique at school. I was academically probably average uh, and mainly out of lack of effort than anything, but I didn't certainly didn't get good grades. So yeah, when I had the opportunity to leave at 16, I said, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to go work. And I left. And then I think the realization that the world of work required a, a, a better basket of skills than I had, I ended up hastily going to a technical college to do some two very rubbish A-levels. Again, I hadn't really kind of clicked into putting a lot of effort into things at that age. But, and again, I left there at uh, 18 and thought, right, I'm ready for work and then realized I wasn't and went very last minute to the University of Westminster to do a degree in computer science. And I was lucky because my A-level results were a C and an E. So they were, they took me. But the social mobility aspect is, this is in the early 80s. And at that point in the UK, if you wanted to go to university and the university would take you, it was free. It was completely free. And in fact, I got paid to go to university. I got a grant and I got travel expenses. My parents were running their own business. As I said, they both worked, but they were distracted by effectively the separation of their marriage and they were distracted. So I didn't want to kind of rely on them too much at, at that age. And yeah, I had this these terrible academic results. I wasn't a very focused person, but the country somehow made it possible for me to go and get a degree, which I did, and then start out in banking and investment banking technology. And, you know, on this path through life where I had, you know, a great career and, and great earnings. So yes, I it was all based on merit and not based on class or money uh, at that time. 
love that. I know you spent a bit of time in financial services, a fair few years in technology and in financial services. And then you obviously eventually started Photobox. So I know a lot of people listening will have heard of, of the business, but in case they haven't, what was Photobox or what is Photobox? And how did you come up with the idea for it? Sure. So Photobox, at the time we started, was a very simple service. It was a website where you could upload your digital photos and add them to your basket. And you could say, I want six by fours of those, five by sevens of those, or eight by tens of those. And that was it. Three print sizes. But we would print them uh, on amazing high quality photographic paper. So the whole proposition was amazing quality prints, very affordable, delivered to your door tomorrow. Like we shipped them same day and they went out first class post. So most people had them the next day. And so the backstory was that, yes, I'd worked in investment banking tech for uh, maybe 12, 13 years. I had a really nice career. I'd learned a lot. I built up some contacts and some savings and experience and confidence. And in my mid-30s, when I was married and I had two young boys at the time, a three-year-old and a one-year-old, We would take lots and lots of photos of them and I'd go down to Boots every couple of weeks with a roll of film and we'd get back this wadge of prints. And, you know, some of them were great, young child photos, baby pictures, and some were, you know, rubbish. The the flash hadn't gone off or the lighting was poor or your thumb was in the middle. And I was thinking, this is kind of very unselective. You know, I'd like to be more selective about what we print. So you know, I'm a techie at heart. I went out and bought an early digital camera from Sony and it took amazing pictures and I could put them on my screen, you know, screensavers, all that kind of stuff, but couldn't print them. Nothing, there was no service on the high street, nothing online. And if any of you have ever, James, you might've owned an inkjet printer at some point in your distant past, but these were clunky things that you had ink cartridges in and they would print very slowly, very noisily, and the end results weren't great. They would smudge. So they weren't real photos. And they'd always dry up if you weren't using them. So I thought, you know, if I built a website and one of those big fat printers you see in the back of boots at the end, and then somewhere in the middle, some kind of order management system, the technology didn't feel complicated to me. The service felt like it could be possible. So I started writing. I would be on the tube every day going into the city. And I'd start writing a kind of business plan. I wasn't an entrepreneur. I wasn't thinking of it as a business plan. I just wrote this document of how would I go about doing this service? How would I raise the money? What products would I offer? How would I find customers? How would I operate the service? And this ended up being, you know, about 16 pages of effectively a business plan. And after a couple of weeks, I showed it to some people and they said, oh, if you're going to do this, we'll back you. And the context was 1999 was you know, nearly the top of the internet boom years. It was the time when Amazon had been around for a couple of years. Everybody was starting websites. The whole consumer internet was firing up at that point. So there was a frenzy, there was a bubble, and everybody wanted to get on board and invest in internet businesses. So when I rocked up at my desk in the city and said, this is what I'm thinking of doing, people said, let's do it. And I convinced a friend to come in with me as a co-founder. And I went back to these people and said, okay, I'll do it. And within a week, I'd raised £480,000, opened an AtWest bank account, paid it in, (laughs) and then thought, gosh, you know, like I've got to start this business. And all I've got is these 16 sheets of paper and this bank account with half a million quid in it. You know, I have no idea what to do next. But 
This was effectively the end of 99. I quit my job with Merrill Lynch and uh, we started very, very slowly. And I think we launched, Mark and I launched in May 2000 and the dot-com bubble collapsed like about two weeks later, which in many ways was a crisis. It felt like a crisis at the time. It certainly made it impossible to get additional funding, but it also opened some opportunities as well. So yeah, the, the business started as a very simple proposition and evolved over, just over time. Wow, amazing. And, and you hadn't run a business before, so I'm just intrigued. How, how were those first couple of years, especially given the backdrop of a lot of economic uncertainty, but you'd got the money in the bank, you'd written this business plan. I, I do sometimes wonder how many people wrote business plans on the commute and, and how many uh, you know, just let them sit on a shelf versus the people like you that actually turned it into something. But, but you'd done that. So how did you turn this idea with some cash into what it became. Uh, can you tell us a bit about that, those early years and how you learned on the go? Yeah. So, you know, like I said, the business plan was kind of like a, a high level view of what do I need to do this? I need a printer. I need, you know, some premises. I need somebody to put together a website. You know, there were all these things. And so basically it just became a kind of giant to do list and you just go through it bit by bit. I have to say, you know, the whole photo box journey was the story of a thousand missteps. And at the beginning, you know, the, that first year probably t- had its own micro thousand missteps. Everything felt like we were making the wrong decisions. And it was tough. I mean, it, it was the four hour sleep time, uh, certainly at the beginning. We weren't paying ourselves hardly any money. So it was all about burning savings. I think I naively thought that this was going to be a business that would immediately take off and, you know, we'd sell it for a million quid a year later. And the reality was it was really slow. Our first day's takings were £2.70 and then we had two days of zero and then it kind of slowly crept up. It took us more than 18 months to get to the first £1,000 revenue day. And that was a, 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 a Christmas period order. So it was a small business run mostly by two people that just took forever to get going. And I felt intense pressure during that time and was very aware of everything I didn't know. (laughs) So including things like marketing. Do you know what? And it's so it's so important to hear this. I think so. And lots of people that are going to be listening to this that are in that early phase where it just feels like a grind. What kept you going in that period? And what was the point where it turned where you realized, okay, there's something here? Was there a particular play that you made or or just a particular point where it just suddenly clicked for for consumers? There was no one big event that kind of suddenly flipped us to, uh, you know, to the success path. I do remember, I mean, we, we didn't, like I said, we didn't know anything about marketing. And it's probably difficult for people to believe, but all the channels that you would use for marketing today, like Google AdWords and Facebook advertising, they didn't exist. There was no Facebook. There was no Google when we started. So we were doing really dumb things like leaflet drops and sponsoring my dad's middle-aged golf tournament or something. It, it was rubbish. And at one point, we'd hired a PR team and we're thinking, well, let's at least get our name out there into the press or at least the specialist press. And um, I got interviewed on LBC one night about internet startups in London. And I thought the servers would melt down, you know, with people flocking to us. And I I came to the office after the interview and was logged on and looking. And I think we got like six registrations. And that was it. (laughs) You know, it was 
just in, in, so everything we thought would be a big lurch forward wasn't. We won a, we won an e-commerce award in 2000 as well. Again, you know, a little burst of activity, nothing major. I think it was slow, steady growth. It's it's a bit like boiling the frog. It was growing so slowly that we couldn't really tell it was growing, but obviously it was. You know, the revenues were going up month on month, but it didn't feel like success. The thing that really changed it was, and by the way, we left things way too long. I mean, we basically ran on this small business path for five years. And at that point, five years later, I think my wife was, you know, she was very encouraging through the whole journey, but she was just saying to me, what, what's the plan? You know, we, we've, we've sold our car, we're not going on holidays anymore. You know, we've remortgaged the house, you don't take the kids out for hot chocolates at the weekend, you know, what's the plan to get us back onto uh, another track. And, and I, it made me think that I can't wait for it to happen passively, I've got to force it to happen. So I, I went to my co-founder, Mark, and I said, look, we've, we've either got to grow this business much bigger, or we've got to stop doing this and go back to our original jobs because we can't tread this middle ground anymore. And the plan to grow bigger was let's expand into Europe, but we have no European credentials. So let's go and buy a European business or merge with a European business. Oh, but we don't have any money. Well, it's a kind of chicken and egg thing. We've got to go and find an investor and say, we're moving into Europe, we've got the credentials, give us the money and we'll find the target company. So it was that kind of complex three-way deal. And we agreed to do this and we started doing some investigation. And our plan A was we found a small Swiss company that looked perfect, you know, a small headcount but covered about seven countries. And they agreed that they would be bought by us. We'd go and do a small IPO on AIM. It all sounds very easy, but you know, lots of investigation and preparation went into this. And I flew over to Geneva to do the uh, due diligence myself. And I was diving into their database and looking through their numbers. Just you know, you normally you go in and check. You know, they say they've got this many customers and this much revenue and these many orders. You just want to check these things for yourself. And I was doing that. And one thing I noticed was their VAT column in the database was always zero. And I said, how does that work? And they said, oh, it's fine. It's fine. We're Swiss. You know, we don't have to charge VAT. And I said to them, but for example, you have customers in Germany and you print in Germany. <laughs> how can you not charge VAT? And they said, it's fine. It's fine. Anyway, the next day I spoke to their chairman and they admitted they had a huge VAT problem and we couldn't buy this company. So our plan B was we knew two guys in Paris who'd started at roughly the same time as us and they had a very similar photographic print business and phoned them up and said, look, we've got this deal ready to go. Let's put the two companies together. And to cut a long story short, we agreed to do that, but we used their funding, not ours. They'd been talking to some US VCs. And early 2006, we merged with Photoways in, in France. And uh, suddenly we had a, a pan-European business. So that was the point when things suddenly became bigger and a lot more panicky and a lot less controlled. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can imagine. And look, it went on to become this category defining business off the back of that merger in 2006. Can you just tell us a little bit about that experience? Because for anyone that's been around finance and, and the city will know that M&A is not an easy thing. It's very complex and well, it often goes wrong. So, so what were your learnings from that experience that our listeners can benefit from? And, and for anyone that might be looking to merge with another business right now that might be listening to this, what, what advice would you give them? Well, over the years, 
Photobox has been involved in maybe eight major bits of M&A. And I was lucky in that we'd effectively had at this previous deal that had fallen apart as a kind of inoculation. So I had some sense of what can go wrong and what to look for a few months earlier. So I think, first of all, M&A is hard. It's expensive. The lawyers will throw lots of blocks in your way. Everybody's going to get tired and think, why are we doing this? You've got to be really committed to making it happen. You've got to really believe that there is value for you and your business in putting these two companies together. Otherwise, don't bother. It can't be a a bit of a sideshow. It's got to be something that you and your management team and your board are willing to focus on for the next 6 to 12 months to get it done and almost nothing else. And so if you can tick the boxes to say, this is our number one strategic priority, it makes sense from all angles, we really, really want to get this done, and the other side do as well, then go ahead. There are lots of things that can go wrong. That's why due diligence exists. It's about, you know, ticking the boxes, checking that the information that's been presented has got is backed up in data, in fact. And there are always skeletons lurking in the closet and and any M&A process is designed to flush those out. We found two massive ones with the French company and we still went ahead. And though both of those nearly <laughs> nearly killed us, but um, you know, we at least we were pre-warned. And then beyond the deal itself, you've suddenly got this bigger company, you know, you've got two sets of employees put together, two sets of leadership team put together. You've got professional money invested, so there's a lot more external pressure. And you've got this strategic mission to go on. And I was expecting like a real step up in professionalism from this combined management team. And and I found that we were a bit rudderless and a bit undermanaged, to be honest. I think we were all relatively early stage business people. And we hadn't really gotten the experience of this kind of pan-European scale-up stage. So the VCs asked me if I wanted to be CEO. And I said, I really don't. I don't think I have the experience. And to be honest, it felt like the focus of the company was shifting to France and I didn't want to move to Paris uh, at the time. So I asked them, the VCs, if they would help us recruit a CEO. So effectively, I was you know, firing myself as CEO. But they did that and they found this amazing guy called Stan who'd come from AOL. And he ended up being the toughest boss I'd ever had for 10 years, but also an amazing mentor and somebody that I learned so much from about the craft of scale up and exit. Amazing. What a story. And I think it says a lot about your self-awareness. We see far too many founders cling on for dear life and, and, and ultimately get exited from their own business, which is a very sad state of affairs, but it, it happens a lot. And you can understand it, right? I mean, these are our babies that we're building and, and it's hard to let go. But I think that says a lot about you and and, and I think different stages of business, it definitely was the right time clearly to bring in a professional CEO that clearly with you alongside and took the business to the next level. You then shifted into a CTO role, didn't you? So how did you find them running the show to not? What was that experience like for you? I think if I look back over the previous six years, they were kind of characterized by an abundance of enthusiasm for what I was throwing myself into and a willingness to experiment and try things and get things wrong. But I was definitely not a textbook CEO for those first six years. And I I think I was employing the same methodology with being a CTO, which is, I'm just going to get this done. I'm going to promise all this stuff. I'm going to find a way and I'm just going to experiment. And if I make a few mistakes, I'll fix it. And that didn't work. It didn't work in a scale up VC company with, you know, tens of millions of other people's money invested. Um, 
I overpromised. I, I, like I said, we had two big fires to put out, which were due diligence issues that had come up with the French company. And we focused initially on stabilizing those two things. And then the next thing was, I said, well, I seem to have inherited six different websites across Europe, two or three on the Photobox side and three or four on the uh, Photoway side. I'm just going to build one big website that does everything, multi-language, multi-currency, you know, build in all the bells and whistles our marketing team wants, all the features the customers have been asking for, you know. And I think I said to the board, give me nine months and 12 people and I'll get it done. And that was just stupid and naive. And I, I wasn't embracing agile. I didn't know what I was talking about. In fact, we didn't even have any kind of formal product role. I'd always done product myself. So... It was just a ridiculous overpromising, which an experienced CTO wouldn't have done. And nevertheless, I set out on this path. That nine months ended up being two and a half years, which has a lot to do with my burnout during that time. So yeah, it was it was a horrible experience in a way. I just uh, had to learn on the job and fix it as I as I went. Wow. Yeah. Again, I, I just loved your honesty, Graham, because I think there are so many people that would have just chucked the towel in and you persevered and clearly did a fantastic job. But perhaps, you know, it took a bit of time to get there. I really hope you're enjoying today's episode so far. But before we continue hearing from today's mentor, I wanted to take a minute to give a shout out to our series sponsors, Alchemist. Alchemist is an industry-leading learning and development company using immersive and interactive experiences to help increase employee engagement, levels of happiness and achievement across your teams and overall productivity. Alchemist presents L&D departments with an opportunity to innovate and be bold in their approaches to blended learning. If you love the sound of this as much as we do here at JBM, then head over to thisisalchemist.com forward slash 40 minute mentor to learn more. And now back to our 40 minute mentor. While you were in that role, you acquired Moonpig. It seems ridiculous not to talk about the one of the most iconic brands that all our listeners will know and love. We've had the great pleasure of having Nick, who you mentioned, Nick Jenkins, on the podcast before. He obviously founded Moonpig. So I'd love to just learn a bit about that story, why you thought Moonpig was such a great fit at the time. I know there's a bit of a story about that this didn't just happen, that you'd been in, in touch before. So I'd love just to hear a bit about how you got to know Nick and why it was the right time to buy it when you did. I can't remember exactly when I first met Nick, but it was early on in both of our journeys. And we were aware of each other being effectively personalized print companies, albeit with very different purposes and very different use cases for our customers. But there was a lot of crossover. So our customers wanted to order cards, typically packs of cards, uh, whereas Moonpig was more one-off cards. And his customers wanted to order photo merchandise like T-shirts and mugs. So he used to print cards for us. We used to print mugs and T-shirts for him. And there was this, I mean, very, very manual physical thing, which was I would sometimes go over to him with a zip disk with all the customer orders on to his premises in Chelsea. And if there was a small number of orders, I'd collect them on my scooter. <laughs> and if, if it was a large number, he'd send a van over, you know, that kind of thing. So we knew each other. We talk about the businesses. We compare notes on suppliers. And I, I think around 2006, 2007, we said, maybe we should put the two businesses together. And he, I remember he, had, he went off and had a beer with our CFO, James, and they discussed the number, which was 2 million quid. And I thought, there's no way I'm paying 2 million quid for this card company. It's never worth that. But anyway, it didn't happen until many years later. But what happened with us is we 
we were VC backed and our investors expected us to find some exit path at some point. And in 2010, we had an option to do a trade sale to a much larger overseas company. And that looked like it was going ahead. It was all very heavily planned. They were doing our personal contracts. Everything was discussed. And we went off to have a kind of summit meeting with the new buyers in Paris, essentially just to finalize everything. And I, I know we got vibes of that, that something was wrong. The CEO had flown in. He left a few hours later and left his team to kind of finish up the talks. And we thought, there's something not right here. It's not going to happen. And it didn't happen. And afterwards, we reflected, why didn't it? And there were lots of things. Whenever you sell a business, it's got to be an auction process. You've got to have several interested parties and several possible paths to sell. And we didn't have any of those other parties or other paths. We couldn't IPO. We were too small. You know, we didn't have any other trade buyers. Uh, there was there were no other parties. So we said the the root cause of this is almost like the five whys thing. The root cause of us not completing a sale were completely under our control. And what can we do to tick some of these boxes? We need higher revenue, higher profit. We need to be less focused on just a Christmas profitable period and have more peaks during the year. We need to have a broader appeal with other product categories. And the answer to this was Moonpig. If we could buy Moonpig, we would tick a lot of these boxes and make us into a lot more stable company with higher growth. And so we approached Nick again and uh, this and he said, yes, of course, the number was much bigger. It was 60 times bigger than the number I'd rejected. But yeah, it, it was, you know, Moonpig was and throughout our journey was and is still an, an incredible company that does a job really well and continues to grow and expand and serve its customers well. So uh, yeah, absolutely zero regrets about that deal. Yeah, it worked out for the best for, for everyone. What a great story. In 2016, Graham, Photobox was acquired by private equity and you exited the business. Congratulations. What a feeling that must have been having taken the business so far. Now that you've kind of had a few years to reflect on that whole experience, what was it like for you? And particularly now you're on the other side of it, like what were the most important learnings from, from exiting the business? And anything that I'm sure there's a lot of aspirational founders here looking to exit their businesses in time to come. Any nuggets of wisdom that you would uh, pass on to them? Well, it was a very long journey. And I, I, I'm sure people would love to have the successful outcome, but perhaps not the long time horizon of 16 years. It was an incredible journey for me as well. I, I felt like it was effectively five different companies. You know, we had this, the small startup and then the kind of early stage European company and then the rapid growth period and then the consolidation when we were buying other brands in Europe and then this exit period. An exit, of course, is not an exit of the company. It's an exit of investors primarily and swapping them out for new investors. So we swapped out the VCs who'd been very patient for 10 years and private equity came in to replace those VCs as the main investor. And some of the leadership team left at that point. I didn't actually leave during... I, I could have left, but I didn't. I stayed on for another year because I wanted to retain some of the company memory and values that we'd started with and make sure that was kind of transferred through to the new owners. But yeah, the staff carried on, the company continued to grow. And, you know, with new investment, it was able to do some new things that it wasn't able to do before. So it's a transformation of the company, but not an end to the company, of course. I just think there were so many lessons I learned, the missteps stick in my mind, perhaps more than the correct decisions, but all entrepreneurship and all 
business evolution, it's a process of natural selection. You can't ever guarantee that the playbook you're going to follow is going to guarantee success. You know, 100 companies might be on the start line and only one or two might get to a really spectacular exit. And there's nothing you can do to predict that, unfortunately. But what you can do is be aware that a lot of the things you do are wrong. They're effectively experiments. And you have to create a culture in which that experimentation is seen, perceived, and encouraged. And you get very, very good at going through those experimentation cycles and working out what works and what doesn't. And I think our staff were able to put up with a lot of failure because you know we try things, we try new product categories, we try selling through Facebook shops, and these things wouldn't work. And we'd say, okay, we'll stop that. We're going to try something else. And I, I think that's the thing that I took away. It's that resilience and adaption mentality to last the course. Brilliant advice. Really, really wise words there. Thank you. A lot of exited founders will down tools, travel the world, sip cocktails on a beach, play golf, whatever it may be. I, I would get a box at Aston Villa and just enjoy, well, not enjoy, probably get depressed most Saturdays. But your experience has been a bit different. I think I read that you created a list of things you wanted to do. You ticked it all off in six months. So tell us a bit about that and what you did. And why did you ultimately decide to then go back into to work, albeit in a different advisory capacity? So I, I left work in May 2017. And I left specifically with a you know, mindset of decompressing a bit, having a bit of time off, a bit more time connecting with my wife and, and what were then, I guess, teenage boys. And I did make a list. It was very boring. You know, I'm a list maker. Everything's a to-do list for me. I've got, you know, nice one building up there for today and this weekend. But there were very boring things like, you know, clear out the attic and fix this and fix that. And there were places I wanted to go and see. So yeah, I did do the travel thing for a few months with my family. We went on discrete, you know, separate trips, but we went to Iceland and Japan. I'd worked in Japan a bit in the 1990s for UBS and I'd only ever been there on work and I wanted to go there as a tourist. And, you know, a few other European locations and we had a great time, really enjoyed the travel. And yeah, I read the stuff I wanted to do. I did the exercise I wanted to do. I did the travel. And then I thought, well, what, what's now? <laughs> what happens next? And I think my wife jokingly said, well, don't be thinking you're going to sit here strumming your guitar all day. You know, <laughs> I've got a house to run and you're going to be in the way. So, and it wasn't for that reason, but I, I recognize that I'm somebody that likes to be busy. I like structure. I like a packed diary. And I thought, how can I balance correctly? You know, one of the great outcomes of selling a business is that you have the freedom on how you want to spend your time. And that can mean doing nothing or playing golf. I hate golf, by the way, but you know, fair enough. Some people are into yachts and cars. I'm not into those. I don't really have any hobbies. So freedom for me meant, okay, what, what types of work do I want to dabble in or, or causes do I want to help with? And I started to do some advisory work in around September that year. So I effectively only had like six months off. And then got introduced by a headhunter to a, a much smaller supply chain tech company that needed some help and actually had the same investor that we had at Photobox Index Ventures. And so I ended up joining them full time for a couple of years. And that was really hard. It was really stressful. It was somebody else's baby, somebody else's vision. The company was a bit challenged in some areas. Growth had stalled and uh, there were you know, some legacy tech issues and a lot of cleanup needed. And I think the investors really wanted to sell the business. So 
I, I felt like I worked much harder there than I did at Photobox. And I had, you know, 100% of the stress and 1% of the revenue. But nevertheless, we, we did tidy that up. We sold it uh, and that sold in early 2020. And so once again, I found myself, you know, thinking, okay, how am I going to fill my time? This is just as COVID was hitting. And actually, during that time, when we were all at home and all on Zoom, I thought, nobody wants to pay for any work right now. But there are people out there that need advice. So I just set up free 30-minute mentoring sessions for anybody who wanted them and gave out Calendly links through the community we're in, but also several other networks. And suddenly, my diary had lots of 30-minute calls. And some of them were with individuals that didn't know what to do with their career or their personal situation. Some of them were people with early-stage companies. Some of them were people who worked for much bigger companies. But I found it very interesting to hear their challenges and to give them some, you know, simple reflections on that and maybe things to ways to rethink it or reframe it. And I felt like even though those sessions were free and very diverse in the sorts of things people were talking to me about, I felt like I took away more from those calls than they did almost, but they all seemed happy to get a, a session. It's amazing. And I just, I love the way you're paying it forward. And I think it also speaks a lot to why we created this podcast and the power of mentorship, that mentorship is a two-way thing, where actually by getting mentorship is obviously incredibly rewarding, but actually being a mentor as well, you can learn so much from. And that's why I love it. And that's why we really try and promote it on this podcast. Yeah, thank you, Graham. This is really interesting. And I'm sure there are so many people that have benefited from your wisdom and experience over the last couple of years. Shifting topics slightly for the last part of this conversation, you know, you have all these different commitments that you spend a lot of time helping others, but I know you're also very passionate and vocal about wealth and inequality. And in fact, you're part of a movement of wealthy people calling for increased taxes on the rich, which is is not always what you hear. So can you tell our listeners a bit about this? You know, what's the movement all about? How did you get involved? And what are you really looking to change? Well, since 2017, my wife and I have both volunteered for different organizations. She works for the Felix Project, which is a food rescue charity that gets food from supermarkets and retailers and distributes it to charities and refuges and places like that. And she introduced me to a spin-off of that called Refitoria Felix, which is a restaurant in Earl's Court that serves food to the homeless every lunchtime using food from the Felix Project. So once a week, I go there and I'm, I'm a waiter for the day and I you know, help prepare the takeaway food and then serve people in the, in the restaurant. So you know, I've had experience of working with homeless people there for a few years and also Ealing Soup Kitchen. And I'm a supporter of Beam, which is an amazing startup that you, you know, Alex. He crowdfunds homelessness and gets homeless people into employment or into private letting. And their North Star metric is the number of lives changed. And so I, I've had the time and emotion in these areas to understand that not everybody has this, you know, top 10% experience of life where we can all just go to Westfield and buy whatever we want. It's, it's a, very tough for a lot of people. And then when COVID started to hit and the government, you know, reacted at the time to do the right thing and started just handing out free cash to people to pay furlough and, and various support, it occurred to me that the country was going to build up massive debt. And somehow or another, this was going to have to get paid down within the next few years. 
And if they couldn't pay it down, then public services would start to suffer, you know, investment in schools and healthcare and streets and carbon emission commitments and things like that would all suffer. And so I started to ask questions like, if I want to pay more tax, (laughs) or I think everybody should pay more tax, how do we go about this? And I got a lot of no's or shrugs from many quarters of society. I ended up talking to the Treasury and my MP and the Campaign for Social Justice and UBS Optimus, which is a big philanthropy organization. And they pointed me in various directions, but I I felt like I wasn't really finding the right audience. And then I discovered an organization in the States called Millionaires for Humanity. And they had amassed, I don't know, a couple of hundred people who'd signed a letter saying, the majority of the wealth is in a small number of hands. And if people feel like they want a better society, they could release some of this money and reinvest. And I signed that letter and I ended up connecting with a handful of people in the UK who'd also signed the letter. And we ended up forming an organization called Patriotic Millionaires UK, which is an odd name for a UK organization, but it, it, it has historic reasons. And yes, we argue for more progressive taxation. We argue that shifting the burden from hardworking families to taking more money from those with wealth has zero impact on the lifestyles of the wealthy, but has a big impact on the people who you're relieving some of that pressure from. And right now we have you know, a leadership election process going on for the Conservative Party. And everyone is trying to outbid each other on how much they're going to lower taxes. And that's fine. Taxes do need to be lowered on 90% of the population, but they have to show how that's going to be funded. And the money has to come from somewhere. Otherwise, either borrowing is going to increase or public services are going to be cut. And this country is a complex country. It has lots of structural issues and it needs big investment to make it work. So I feel, and I'm in a group of about uh, 20 or 30 others who also feel the same way, that we have the money, we are the targets of this tax, and we are happy to pay it. To put this into context for your, your listeners, perhaps, those of us that call ourselves entrepreneurs, we start businesses and we hope those businesses will be very successful, deliver value to our customers and create financial value. But we don't do that in isolation. It may come out of our minds, but we're the environment in which we create our business, we have healthy, well-educated people to come and work for us. We have you know, a safe legislation and tax jurisdiction in the UK that create, makes it possible for investors to invest safely. We have you know, public order and a great investment in, in infrastructure and innovation. So we have broadband, perhaps not in, enough in rural areas, but you know, for the most part, the UK is a high-speed internet uh, society and we have roads and plumbing and heating and all these things. So all of that societal investment has made it possible for our businesses to be born and to thrive. And then when we are successful, you know, I pay 10% tax with entrepreneurs relief and that's not enough. I could have afforded to have paid a lot more and I would have been happy to pay in a lot more. So yeah, that's where it comes from. A really interesting point, and I really hope it will give everyone a bit of pause for thought there. And I think the only way this sort of stuff is going to change is by people like yourself that have 
you know, created wealth and, and been very successful to actually, you know, lead by example on that. So I think it's, I think it's really admirable and an important topic. I know not everyone listening to this will agree, but I think it's, uh, it's something worth discussion. And uh, I'm really glad you're, you're talking about it. We know with the pandemic, it's been turbulent and horrendous and there's been such a big impact on so many people's lives we're now you know in in a a cost of living crisis we have a recession that is pretty much here what do you think needs to sort of happen to stabilize the way wealth is distributed in our society And, and what can business leaders do to be a part of you know solving this because yeah i think there's a lot we all need to come together to help you know tackle some of these problems you know i i don't want to be too negative, but I, I think the problem is that economics and commercialization, they're hardwired to, to try and siphon money out of the system and into a small number of hands. And in particular, the way that companies are run, the governance is there's this shareholder primacy. So profits are designed to be made and returned to the shareholders. For those of you who know what a B Corp is, it's it's a much more balanced model where it recognizes the importance of not only shareholders, but also customers, employees, the community in which the business operates and the planet as equal shareholders, equal stakeholders. So there's a kind of model problem that money tends to trickle up, not trickle down, but trickle up into a small number of hands, which is why you know the top 1% uh, of the UK now controls 50% of the UK wealth. So it's a structural problem. I'm not sure it has any quick solution, but we need to recognize it and have a long-term plan. I'm a big fan of long-term plans. I think uh, a lot of issues that you think can't be solved uh, have no clear solution. If you think about them in terms of a 10, 20, 50-year time horizon, there are lots more solutions that present themselves. So yeah, that's that's my way of thinking about it. That's really, really, really interesting. Thank you, Graham. Last question before I wrap up questions. There are going to be founders listening to this that have never faced an economic downturn before. And you are a man that has, and also has sort of survived many crises from the dot-com bubble bursting and all the various things around M&A transactions falling over and various other things. So what advice would you like to leave our founders that are listening to this with and just in general, anybody that's just going through their first economic downturn and how can they come through it and ultimately hopefully thrive, you know, during a recession? Yeah. So Photobox went through two big ones, the one right at the beginning in year 2000, which actually the resulting recession went through to 2002. And the other one, of course, was the overhang from the um, credit crunch in 2007, which went through from 2008 to, I think, to 2010, the official recession period. And when I look back at the time, those felt awful. We felt like, you know, we have no funding options in the case of the first one, and we're going to be limboed as this small business. But actually, during that time, even as a small business, we got to be UK market leader with only five people working for us. So what happened was competition fell away. People weren't getting funded in the space. It created an opportunity for us to run as a very lean, efficient company and become UK market leader. So that's one thing. In the second recession, we didn't have the funding problem, but we did have a problem with people feeling poorer and not not wanting to do as many uh, discretionary purchases. But again, it gave us time. Effectively, my two and a half year screw up website, it did emerge eventually, and it was a great engine for our growth. But it we had that time of two and a half years to build almost in quietly in the background because the recession meant that 
nobody else was kind of stomping on our ground. So it gave us time to build. And it also gave us a chance to reflect on value for our customers. And okay, how have our customers' needs changed? They still want to celebrate life special moments, birthdays and anniversaries and holidays, but they, they're very price conscious now. What can we do to offer them more value for money? And we found a way of industrializing our production and offering lower prices. So all of those things, you know, effectively, we became at the time the IKEA of photo products, you know, great quality products, but at a really low price. And when we came out of that recession, 2010 onwards, we were just moving so quickly. We expanded into 19 countries. We had 1,400 employees. We, sales reached over 300 million pounds. So it was a consolidation period to pause, reflect, focus on value, and build the solution that everybody needed. Love that. We were having a conversation internally ourselves about how there are going to be clients of ours that are really going through the ringer at the moment who will not be hiring. And actually, it's more important than ever that we are visible and supportive, even though there's no chance of searches coming from them or recruitment for us to help with. But actually, clients will always remember and customers always remember how you are in the hard times. And that loyalty is built from doing things to sort of support them. And whether that's bringing down the cost to enable people to still enjoy the product or whether it's just being a a sounding board for advice and just there at the end of the phone, I think it's a a really important lesson for us all to kind of keep in mind during the times when people can get a bit desperate and, and just chase the money in an industry like ours. And actually, you need to keep in mind the people that are going to struggle. Graham, it's been a wonderful conversation and we've got four quick wrap-up questions. In one sentence, what do you think the future holds for you? Just more of the same, I hope. I, like I said, I have the freedom to choose how I spend my time, but I like to spend it on some advisory work and pro bono mentoring and uh, more of the same. Lovely stuff. At the end of your career, which seems to be ongoing and uh, continue to evolve all the time, what would you like to be remembered for? Well, hopefully being a great husband and father, I I think the work stuff is great when you're in the middle of it all. And and I certainly enjoyed the journey, but, you know, I don't need to be or don't expect to be remembered for that. It's, It's the personal connections that matter. So true. If you could be mentored by one person dead or alive, who would it be and why? I think when I was in the active period at Photobox, there were... A hundred people I would have wanted to have talked to for advice, either domain experts or famous entrepreneurs. And I would have found that really useful. To be honest, I learned so much from the people I talk to regularly and the people I mentor these days that that's, that's enough for me. Brilliant answer. Thank you. And finally, what is the best piece of advice that you've ever received? This is a hard one. I mean, I, I feel like my entire photo box journey was like a a constant list of learnings, most of which I've managed to remember, but they were all very specific to certain situations, you know, like challenging technology projects and figuring out how to deal with difficult people and how to grow your business, how to exit your business, all of these things. I think the maybe the one more general piece of advice is that I think entrepreneurs, we have this common thread that we connect together things. You know, I I think the word literally means to take between. And we discover some interesting 
person here and a couple of years later we think that person would be the perfect person to solve this problem or we see this product and we think that would be really interesting if you combine it with this. We combine things in our head over space and time. And that only happens because we go out there and make connections. We talk to lots of people. We learn things. We have interesting conversations we store away in our minds. So I think it's just that. Go out there and talk to people. I think for the first two years of Photobox, I was head down at my desk, really focused. I didn't talk to people. I didn't go out for coffees. I didn't share my stresses and frustrations. And I think I would have got through that period a lot faster and easier if I'd gone out and talked to people about what I was experiencing. So just go out there and talk to people. Such a fantastic piece of advice to leave our listeners with. Graham, thank you so much. It's been a real joy to chat to you and hear about your incredible career. So much wise mentorship there for our listeners. So uh, on behalf of them and myself, thank you so much. It's my pleasure. Graham is one of the nicest people we have ever had on 40 Minute Mentor. So I really hope you enjoyed the episode as much as I did. I love how down to earth he is despite his incredible achievements and really admire how much he wants to give back to the wider ecosystem and society in general. What a legend he is. We've been overwhelmed by the great feedback that we've received after launching this new series, and we can't thank you enough for your ongoing support. So if you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review and subscribing on your favorite podcast platform. It really means a lot to us and helps us spread our pocket-sized career mentorship podcast even further. Thank you again and see you next week for another dose of mentorship, this time with a brilliant Molly Johnson-Jones, the co-founder of Flexer, a rocket ship startup that we are very proud to partner with at JBM. Here's a little preview of what's to come. Some investors didn't even open the deck because we were a couple that were like, no. I think it's so important that female founders try to seek out female investors because the only way that we can change a very broken system of only 1.8% of funding going to women is by getting more representation on both sides of the table. It's just flipping the hiring process on its head, giving candidates the information that actually is a deal breaker if it's not there. But people suffer through three rounds of interviews, even off the stage to try and get to that point. Or they're told, oh, you can request it on day one. That level of insecurity and precarity just isn't there.